Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. Or should I say y'all? Did, did Rick really make fun of the way I talked last week? I, man, do you guys think I talk funny? Oh, my God. Actually, you're going to get a kick out of this. During the summer, heading into my junior year of high school, we moved about an hour north of New York City to this small town in Connecticut. And as I began to make friends over the course of that summer... And as they began to get a little more comfortable with me, they began to make fun of the way I talked. And seriously, I just didn't get it. Like, I hear myself talk all the time, and I sound perfectly normal to me. So school starts, and one of my classes is a speech class. And we all have to do this couple-of-minute speech that the teacher tapes and then plays back. And so we get through about half the class when my face shows up on the screen. I'll date myself a little bit. It might have actually been the first time that I ever saw and heard myself on some form of a video playback. You know, from the perspective of what somebody else sees and hears. And about five words in, I literally cringed. They were right. Rick was right. I talk funny. But most of the time, I am just in this complete state of unawareness about the reality of how I talk, unless somebody puts it like on my radar, like Rick did last week. Well, in the passage that I'm going to share from this morning, as we wrap up our six-week Ephesians series, Paul is going to put a reality on our radar that we tend to lose awareness about. And, And unlike my unawareness about the reality of how I talk, which frankly has no impact on my life, and really has no impact on your life, this reality that Paul is going to highlight, it has huge, huge implications for us. In fact, it's a game changer, especially in light of what he has offered from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul, he's been describing what a life following Jesus should look like from this very practical perspective. But then in verses 10 through 13, Paul, he switches gears, he changes direction, and he jolts his readers to this staggering perspective about their life. And this is a really big deal. He says a final word. Now, this isn't a final word like, oh, here's just some afterthought. This puts a cap on everything that Paul has been teaching. He says a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And it's interesting to note that Paul has written this letter to believers who, according to what Paul wrote all the way back in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that they already have in them the very power that rose Jesus from the dead. It's already in them. And yet in his closing remarks to this book, he finds it necessary to remind these believers to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, which clearly implies the possibility that they might be finding their strength and their power somewhere else, maybe in themselves or maybe in uh, other people, but not in God. And apparently to Paul, that's a problem that's worth mentioning. If you were here last week, you heard Rick share my story of life change in an area of life that Paul had talked about in chapter 5, which was the crude language that pervaded my speech. 
And it's true. I grew up perfecting a vocabulary and a sense of humor that was littered with profanity and coarse, crude language. But frankly, in most every setting that I was in, my crude language, it kind of played just fine. Unless uh, my mother was around, who would then feed me a bar of ivory soap. But honestly, it was just my norm. And I had no real moral dilemma about it. This was long before my walk with Jesus began. And honestly, I didn't see any real gain in changing the way I talked and my manner of speech, notwithstanding the times I snacked on ivory, until my children were born. Until my children were born. You know, things change when you become a parent. And intuitively, I knew that there would be gain if my kids weren't exposed to my crude language. And so in my own strength and power, and that's all that I had, I set about to change my language, at least around them. And being this strong-willed, disciplined, overachiever that I was, I would say I was nailing it. I was doing pretty great. And then comes this one beautiful, sunny day in Corpus Christi on a fishing boat with my knee-high four-year-old son, Brett, and we're around a bunch of people that are fishing, and Brett hears this lady ask someone how to bait her hook, to which Brett confidently looks up at her, and he said, just shove the hook up the shrimps, and he adds this part of the anatomy. Oh, you think that's funny? All the hard work, all of my power, all of my strength to change the way I talked around my children, major, major fail. And maybe some of you guys can look back on your life before Jesus. Or maybe that's still your life. For some of you, you're in the before Jesus season. And you can identify with some behaviors or some relationships, some aspect of life in which you've tried to affect change in your own power and in your own strength because honestly, that's all you have. And as it was, or maybe as it has been so far, It's been ineffective or even a complete failure like I experienced. Well, five years after the fishing experience, I surrendered my life to Jesus. And in God's great sense of humor, the first behavioral thing that God impressed on me that I needed to change was my crude language. And honestly, I thought, God, I have tried this before, and I think after 37 years of perfecting it, we're just kind of stuck with it. Like, we're just going to have to go with this. And yet, as God persisted to convict me, and I learned to find strength in him and in his power, instead of on my own, something very unexpected happened. And my language changed. And it changed surprisingly in a very swift way. And now I can look back, it changed in a very lasting way. And I bet for many Christ followers in the room, you can recall some circumstances around your life Something that you couldn't change about life no matter how hard you tried until you found strength in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then unexpectedly, change happened. And as you look back, you found that it has stuck. And honestly, you would think that once we experience that, it would be this no-brainer to never going back to relying on our own strength and our own power. But the clear implication of Paul's statement in verse 10 is that we Christ followers, we have a tendency to forget about our access to the very power that rose Jesus from the dead. 
And I'm 20 years into my walk with Jesus, and yet I still remain this living, breathing, walking testimony of this drift back to relying on myself. And I bet a number of you Christ followers in the room, you can relate to that. And it's a big deal to Paul. It's a huge deal to Paul. And then he tells us why as he uses this metaphor of armor in verse 11 to convey to us that we are in a battle. And most of us here, we have a lo- enough life behind us where we just know that's, that's true. Life is not just rainbows and unicorns. And I don't know about you, but too often when I realize that there's some battle to fight, this is what I do. I tend to just assess my own intellect or my own position or power or material resources or my own physical strength or even my, my willpower. I assess those things and I compare them to what I think or what I perceive I'm up against, which is recently, re, uh, typically just some other people or maybe it's some temptation within me. And I figuratively, I think, I can take him. I, I can take her. I, I can take that temptation if, if I want to. Do you see in that thinking my strength, my power, I don't know why, but so often that's what we do. And the problem is that we have badly underestimated who our enemy is. In verses 11 and 12, this is what Paul writes. Put on all of God's armor, this battle imagery, so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Man, that ought to get our attention. Do you understand that there are dark, evil, spiritual forces that have you in their crosshairs? Do you understand that? When was the last time that reality was actually on your radar? That should raise the hair on your arms a little bit. It should. And yet the truth is rarely do we have that truth kind of front and center in our minds. We, we just don't think about it. Or if we do, our conception of it is woefully inadequate. Play, play this game with me. I'm going to say a word. And you're going to form a picture in your mind. Okay, are you ready? Car. Dog. The devil. What picture formed in your mind when I said the devil? Maybe this cute little red guy with pointy ears and a curly tail and this tiny pitchfork that wouldn't even feel like a mosquito bite if he stabbed us with it. And this is what we think. I can take him. I, I can take him. How many cartoons and movies and shows have you seen where the shoulder devil thro- shows up? And he's so cute. And you think, oh, man, when I think about the devil, I have this picture in my mind, and I think, I can take him. Not hardly. Paul wrote these spiritual forces have mighty powers. Now, thankfully, God's mighty powers are much greater than theirs, But you can bet that our mighty powers, they don't hold a candle to the mighty powers of those evil spiritual forces. And i got to be honest with you guys. 
That becomes so evident as we just survey the sin that pervades the life of believers, of my own life, of the lack of moral and ethical living in the church at large. When we see those things, man, the forms of wreckage that I see as a pastor of a church in the lives of believers, it would just seem to suggest that far too many followers of Jesus have drifted into this state of oblivion about the reality and or the intensity of the spiritual battle that we're engaged in and who it is that we're fighting. If we're even fighting at all, it usually winds up being in our own strength and our own power. And it's tragic. Friends, collectively, as the church, we're losing the battle. And not just in our lives, but in the lack of impact that we are making on an unbelieving and watching world. And we're better than that. We have to be better than that. But that means that we have to fight for it. And Satan and his forces, they've been engaged in the war of good against evil ever since humanity began, began even before humanity was created. And they've gotten very, very good at the fight. And they understand human nature way better than we do. They understand you way better than you understand yourself. And here's the most terrifying part, at least for me. Most of the attacks of the enemy, they come in this very subtle manner, rather than a smack in the mouth. Hey, when I get smacked in the mouth, I know that I'm in a fight. And I more fully recognize the power that my enemy has. And I then tend to lean back on God and his strength and his power. And that's not good for Satan. And so subtlety and deception, those are Satan's battlefield. Check this out. This is a quote from the movie The Usual Suspects. I know some of you have heard it. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Do you realize how deep that is? The best weapon that evil forces have in their battle for our minds and for our hearts is subtlety and it's deception. And they know just how to pull every one of our individual strings. C.S. Lewis is this uh, famous Christian author. And he, he was a master at using his writing gifts to share the truth about what he gleaned out of Scripture. And he wrote this little gem. It's called the Screw Tape Letters. It's this fictional story that uses its plot and its characters to highlight the reality of spiritual warfare, but also the subtleness of Satan's attacks. And the book, it is spectacular in how it exposes the lies and the promptings that Satan will use to put into our path to derail us. I have this little animated summary of the book that I want you to watch, and I just want you to get a sense of the schemes and the strategies that we're up against. So watch this. Listen closely to this. In the book, Screwtape, the head demon writes 31 letters to advise Wormwood, his protege, on how to tempt the human Wormwood watches. I'm going to give you just some of those letters. In the prologue, Lewis makes it clear that demons don't really care about a human's conception of time. They have watched humans far longer than any average human life. 
They know us better than we know ourselves. Letter 1. Make the human preoccupied with ordinary, real life. Not arguments or science. In other words, the demonic is going to attack us by influencing our emotions and feelings. Letter 2. Make him disillusioned with the church by highlighting people he thinks are strange or hypocritical. Therefore, the human will come to think he is better than the church, which is full of just weirdos. Letter 3. Annoy him with daily nagging conversations from his mother. Letter 4. Keep him from seriously intending to pray at all, and if that fails, subtly misdirect his focus to himself or on an object rather than the enemy. The enemy in this book is God. Letter 6. Capitalize on his uncertainty. Divert his attention from the enemy to himself and redirect his malice to his everyday neighbors and his benevolence to people he doesn't even know. Letter 7. Keep him ignorant of your existence and make him either an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist who regards his cause and his case only as the most important aspect within Christianity. Letter 8. Make good use of your patient's series of lows and highs, and beware that the enemy, which is God, relies on the bad times more than the good times. Letter 9. Capitalize on the tough periods of a human's life by tempting him with sensual pleasures, especially sex, making him content with his moderate religion and directly attacking his faith as merely a phase of his life. Letter 10. Don't underestimate the power of very small sins, because the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Letter 16. Encourage the human to church hop. Don't give up if your direct attacks against his chastity fails. Try to arrange a worldly marriage. Letter 21. Convince him to use the pronoun my in the fully possessive sense of ownership, like my time, my boots, my wife, and my God. Letter 23. Encourage him to embrace a historical Jesus and to treat Christianity as merely a means of political sides and social justice. Letter 30. Capitalize on his fatigue and manipulate his emotions with the word real. Letter 31. His end isn't up to us, Wormwood, but we must do everything we can to win him over. You see the subtleness of these attacks that Wormwood is encouraged to launch against this specific human that he's assigned to. They aren't smacks in the mouth. They're like barely the tickle of a feather. If you can't dissuade the Christian from praying, well, just compel him to just pray for himself. Or how about Wormwood? Convince him that his little sins are no big deal. Oh, might that hit home for some of us. For some of us. Oh, it's no big deal. Or how about the times, the bad times? He's saying Wormwood, just draw him to indulge in worldly pleasures that'll feel good during this bad time. This is subtle, and it pervades our lives. These schemes and these strategies of the evil forces against us, just because we don't see them, it doesn't mean that they're not there. And man, I know that my words are totally inadequate to stir your hearts towards this reality. But I have been praying that the Holy Spirit would grip you with this truth that you are under a relentless spiritual assault. 
and that that would well up in you some urgency that you might do something about that truth. Here's what Paul says to do. Verse 13. He says, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Twice now, in verse 11 and now in 13, Paul has emphasized that we must put on the entirety of God's armor, the full armor, every piece of it. A soldier never went to battle leaving some piece of his armor behind. That would leave him vulnerable and exposed in some area that would otherwise be protected. I mean, that would be just dumb. And then notice the confidence in Paul's words. He says, with this full armor of God, that we will be standing firm after the battle is over. That is such good news. And then in verses 14 through 17, Paul, he leverages this metaphor of armor, which the readers, they would understand that in the context of the armor that the Roman soldiers around them would wear. And Paul describes this armor, 14 through 17. He says, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you would be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now Paul, he provides no commentary in this passage about about that armor, about what, what, it, what we're supposed to do with it. But here's some of what we can infer from the whole of Scripture. The belt of truth. The belt was the very foundation of a soldier's armor. It provided stability and support for his whole body. And so in this spiritual battle that we're in, our very foundation must be grounded in God's truth alone which would then secure and protect both our hearts and our minds. It would give us stability and the support that we need. We saw how even in the middle of paradise, in Genesis chapter 3, how Satan, who scripture calls the great deceiver, was able to convince Adam and Eve to call into question this truth that God gave them about not eating the fruit from this one tree in this massive garden. And so they... They buy the deception, and they create this new truth that they would gain greatly if they would eat this forbidden fruit. And we know how that went for them. And, and we know how that's gone for us, the very first sin, and the battle for humanity it was on. The very foundation of our armor, it must hang on the fact that there is absolute truth, and it is God's truth. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if we would remain grounded in him, we will be able to withstand Satan's lies and deceptions, the belt of truth. The second piece of God's armor that Paul describes, it was the body armor of God's righteousness. In some of your trans translations, it may say the breastplate of righteousness. Body armor or a breastplate, it covered a soldier's torso from neck to thighs, and it was worn to provide protection to the soldier's vital organs, especially his heart, which if his heart got pierced, it would be fatal. 
And so in this regard, the devil often attacks our hearts, which is the center of our emotions and our self-worth and our trust. And it's no stretch, it's no stretch for us to affirm that our own righteousness, that our own resume of right living, our breastplate is peppered with holes in it. It's peppered with gaps in it. That's not very ideal for a breastplate. But Jesus' righteousness is perfect. It's intact. It's impenetrable. And so the way to protect our hearts is to be focused on his righteousness, on on emulating the righteous life that Jesus did, the breastplate of righteousness. And then the shoes of peace and readiness. A shoulder's shoes, they were this sign of readiness. Not only did his shoes provide this footwear to withstand the rugged terrain that he would have to navigate, but they were designed to provide great stability in hand-to-hand combat. And for the believer, these shoes for us, they represent our stability and our sure-footedness that through the good news of the gospel, which says that Jesus has already ultimately won the ultimate war, against sin and death, against our sin and death, that with that truth, that we can engage in this very real spiritual battle, not with anxiousness or fear or uncertainty, but rather with peace and with readiness and with confidence. And then Paul says, take up the shield of faith. Paul had in view the Roman soldiers that had, they had these small round personal shields, but they also had these large rectangular shields. And it's these large ones that Paul has in view. And the Roman soldiers, they would use them to overlap themselves to form a wall of protection when enemy archers that were up on top of a city's wall would rain down flaming arrows on them. Satan is the master at shooting fiery arrows at us to assault our minds, to assault our hearts to create doubt and fear and thoughts of unworthiness in us, that we're not good enough to be a part of God's family. And then God, he shoots, uh, Satan shoots these fiery arrows of passion and desire for worldly things at us. It, it, he's attempting to take our mind off of Jesus with really enticing, pleasurable things of this world. Anything, he'll do anything to take our minds and our focus off of Jesus. And the significance behind this piece of armor is that a believer who has unwavering faith in Jesus will be shielded from any of the the flaming arrows that will come from actually finding their mark and inflicting damage. And then Paul talks about the helmet of salvation. The shoulder's helmet, it was obviously used to protect his head. And Satan, he uses these clever lies and these deceptions to target our minds because what we think drives what we feel and then ultimately what we do. And and Satan, he especially wants to make us doubt God and doubt our salvation. It's our salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection that gives us this assurance that the final victory has already been won. And so this helmet of salvation, it protects our mind from doubting the truth of God's saving work that's already accomplished in us, that Satan wants to attack. And then the final piece of armor is the sword of the Spirit. The sword, it was a weapon that was used by soldiers both for defense and also for offense. It was used to protect and fight off the enemy, but it was also used to slay the enemy. 
The sword of the Spirit, it is the only piece of God's armor that Paul says has an offensive component to it. And frankly, it's the only one that we need. And Paul is very specific about what the sword of the Spirit is. He says it is the Word of God. Friends, our offensive weapon against Satan, against Satan's attack on us, is God's Word. It's our Bibles. But it's not to beat them over the head with. It's rather to ingest into the very core of who we are. Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. In other words, I have ingested God's word. I am hiding, I am planting it deeply in my heart so that I may understand it, so that I may live it out, so that I might not be tempted to sin against God. Do you guys know the story of Jesus, 40 days of temptation in the desert? Right? Most of you have probably heard about that. I'd encourage you all, whether you've heard it or not, read Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, sometime today. Not right now. Luke, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. It's this account about how the devil is assaulting Jesus with temptation and, and how Jesus uses specific scripture to combat the assault. And Jesus isn't kind of lugging around the scrolls of what scripture is and saying, okay, hold on, devil, let me, let me find that verse. Jesus has, has hidden God's word in his very heart. And so he combats this assault directly using scripture. And Jesus, he didn't just know scripture, he lived it. And that's how we use this sword of the spirit. We need to know it. We absolutely need to know it, but we need to obey it. Frankly, like that's the difference between us and Satan. Satan knows God's word. In fact, he probably knows it better than we do. But as obedience goes, no obedience by him. And that's the make or break for us. It's our obedience. If we would know God's word and we would obey it, we would be yielding this sword that we could slay these attacks. All of these pieces of armor, they have this consistent thread that runs through them. Maybe you, you saw it. And that is the person and the works of Jesus Christ. It's wound through every single piece of this armor. When our lives become fully surrendered and fully immersed in his life, when he is everything about us, we stand strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then we can find victory over Satan and his evil forces that are, are inflicting, trying to inflict damage on us in these day-to-day -day skirmishes and battles. And so what do you do with all of that? What do you do with that when you leave here? Well, the first thing is you have to realize you are in a spiritual battle. If you walked in here today and that wasn't on your radar, that has to be on your radar. You are in a spiritual battle. You are under attack. It's true. It's not true because I say so. It's true because it's in God's word. You need to keep that ever before you. I don't know how you do that. Find something that uh, when you see it, it reminds you, I'm in a conflict today. Put it somewhere where you see it. And then I would encourage you to right now identify the assaults or the attacks that Satan is making on you right now. I'd encourage you this week, just spend some time in some deep reflection and try and identify those areas of your life that are under attack. And, and if you're like me, the list, it could get pretty long. Well, ask God to focus your attention on, on the big things right now. 
where Satan has got you. And maybe the big thing may be these little sins that you're just thinking are no big deal. I don't know what it is for you, but ask God. Spend some time reflecting on that. Maybe it's this prevalence or recurring sin or this lack of compassion or this relational strife that you're in. Identify them and then write them down and keep them before you so you know what kind of fight you're in. And if you can't identify one, if you know you say, man, I've thought about it, I'm good, I double-dog dare you to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1, through Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. And if you can't find something in there where God doesn't flick you in the ear, you're my hero, and I want to have lunch with you, okay? you got to identify what those assaults are, or you'll never know what you need to fight. And then once you do that, begin to dig into all of God's word. Understand what he says about those things. Use the back of your Bible. Most of your Bibles in the back, they have these keywords that will point you to the various scriptures that God speaks to those things. Or even it has a topical guide. So uh, identify what those uh, scriptures are and write them out. Write them out and keep it someplace that you'll see it. Memorize the scriptures. That's what Jesus did when, when Satan tried to hit him over the head in the desert. Jesus just started spouting off scripture. And, and we should do that too. We should memorize God's word. And if you need help, if you identify something, but you're having trouble identifying some scripture, some stories in God's word that might speak to it, email me, please. My email's on the back of the program. I would love to help you. And then finally, just resolve to place your strength in the Lord and in his mighty power. And, and for some of you, the start is to make the decision to surrender your life to Jesus. And you can do that in a second as I pray to close out. But here's the deal. You only gain access to God's mighty power, to the power that raised Jesus from the dead, if you are united in relationship with Jesus. Otherwise, you continue to fight in your own power and in your own strength. And if you've been trying to do that, how's that going for you? Like, why, why would you not want to take God up on this offer of his strength and his mighty power. And so today might be the day where you say, there is, I'm, I'm done trying to fight under my own power. Today's the day for me. And then for the Christ followers in the room, you just need to do this reality check about who's in control right now, about where this spiritual battle reality was on your radar, and about where you're really finding your strength and your power in those areas of assault that you've identified. Imagine this, you're, you're swimming far out in the beach oh, down in Galveston, and you become aware that you're surrounded by a school of feeding sharks. And a lifeguard, he rolls up on a jet ski, and he implores you to get on board and to let the power of the jet ski bring you back to safety. Are you going to say, nah, I can take them. I got them. I'll just work my way back. There is no way you're going to do that. Friends, we are surrounded by feeding sharks, so to speak, by these powerful, real evil forces. And as Christ followers, we have access to the mighty power that rose Jesus from the dead. And so find your strength in it. Be strong in the Lord. Father in heaven, it is a shocking reality, this truth about the spiritual battle that we're in. 
The reality that there really are these evil spiritual forces that are out there even though we can't see them. And then they are set about calling our attention away from you and the truth of what you say we are, of who we are, and of what we're called to do. Thank you for reminding us of that reality. And Father, for those in the room that have yet, have yet to avail themselves of, of your mighty power, I would pray that today that they would make themselves, uh, that they would, um, make themselves available to that simply by saying to you, God, I know that I've been fighting these battles all by myself in my own power, in my own strength, and I'm losing, I'm losing. And I know that Jesus died on the cross and he was resurrected so that I could have my sins forgiven, so that I could be raised to this new life that we've been singing about, and so that I could have access to your mighty power. And Father, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of fighting in my own strength. I'm willing to give you control today. I offer you my life. And I pray, Father, for the Christ followers in the room, not only that they would have this reality of spiritual warfare back on their radar, but they would, they would um, uh, claim this great resolve to do something about it, about the way that they're living, not only so that their life can be enriched, but, Father, so that this watching, unbelieving world will see the true reality of the goodness of the gospel. And I pray this with great hope in Jesus' name. Amen.